Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, feel free to visit our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And now here is this week's message. Like Adam said, I'm Brian Ingalls. Uh, my wife is Labriska Ingalls. Some of y'all may or may not know her. She's not here yet. Um, so we're continuing in our series of First John. We've been doing that for, what, four or five weeks now, something like that. Uh, it's been really good, right? Who, all, who all's been here for most of those? I, I love the book of First John, so I'm, I'm hoping uh, what I can share with you today will build on some of what we've already covered and also just give us something we can take away that will help us in life and kind of give us uh, some perspective as pertains to First John, but also just some stuff we can take away that applies to hopefully some broader parts of our lives as well. Um, we got the slides up there. All right, so I'm calling my message, What Do We Have? Um, and I'll, I'll get into why I'm calling it that in a little bit here. Uh, go ahead to the next slide here. This is my uh, family. This is my wife, Bree, and my three children, Judah, River, and Noah. Um, I love my family. You can see we're kind of in a, a stage of life where all of my children are five and under. So it's a very, very fun and sometimes not fun, but uh, it, it's just a great phase of life that's, uh, it's just, it's very full right now. Um, so we, uh, I guess we've been at, at Vineyard, just to, I want to introduce a little bit about myself because I know there's some people here who probably don't know me. Um, my wife was actually went to school here in Campbellsville. We got married, lived in North Carolina for about three years. And then about three years ago, we moved here to Campbellsville and just kind of jumped right in. And here we are overseeing family and children's ministries. It's something we love to do. Uh, but we feel very connected to the vineyard. This is definitely our family. This is our home now. Um, so to tell you a little bit about uh, part of the phase of life that we're in right now, River is this beautiful girl right in the middle here. Uh, she is currently three years old. Uh, my son Judah is five. He is just like me. And so he's been fairly easy for me to connect to, fairly easy for me to relate to, because he thinks the way I do. He operates. He, he perceives life in the way that I do. And so just communicating to him is pretty easy. I kind of know what he's thinking without him having to say much. And so that works really well. River, on the other hand is not like me in those sorts of ways. Uh, she is like me in some ways, but she's also, she's very much just kind of her own wild child. She's very free-spirited. She loves to, she loves to just do what she's interested in. And she doesn't mean anything bad by it a lot of times, but it does get her into some stuff that can be a little bit frustrating to me and, and rub me wrong sometimes. So I'm, I'm learning how to interact with my second child in a way that that works well for both of us. Uh, but one of the, the fun things that we're, we're experiencing with River right now is that she loves the baby so much that she can't help but touch the baby. And she touches this baby with all of her strength, all of her might, and she tends to hurt the baby just a little bit. And so she loves to like push on her face like this. And she gets like excited and gets this uh, look on her face. And so one of the things that we're fighting right now is we're saying, don't touch the baby's face. Don't touch the baby's face. Don't touch the baby's face. I can't tell you how many times we've, we've done this, and it, it just doesn't seem to work. Like, she does this over and over and over again, and it's like, part of it are just like, how, I don't get it. Why, why can't you understand? Just do the simple thing, don't do this. Um, so the hope in all this, though, is I really know that she's not going to do this forever. She will grow out of this. It may seem at this point in time like she is always going to be touching that baby's face and won't stop. But I, I want to guess when she's, you know, four or five and... Certainly as she gets older, she's going to grow out of this. And it's something that's going to naturally just kind of work its way out. And so sort of the this way that she's acting right now, though it may seem like this is just the way she's set on her path, she's going to grow out of that and everything's going to be good. So I'll, I'll get back to this in a few minutes. Uh, go ahead to the next slide. All right. So what do you all see? Glass of water. Anyone see anything else? Glass half full. Anyone else see something else? Ripples. All right. So this this is a little bit of a a cliche sort of 
I guess, word picture or example. It's, you know, how do you, how do you see the world? Do you see it half empty? Do you see it half full? Um, there's a lot of things that could be said about that. I, I really, this is not going to be about, you know, how do you see the world? Some people see it negative. Some people see it positive. But what I do want to point out is that how you see things and how you perceive things or how we perceive things can very much affect um, how you approach life, how you process the world, and it affects your motivations. So as a very simple example, when you see this glass here, you have a glass of water. I was hoping to have a, a picture of a half-full milkshake, but uh, I could not find one of those. Uh, so you have this, uh, this thing that has something in it that you want, something that you like. And so if you look at this and say, well, it's half-empty, it kind of gives you this feeling of, well, I'm missing something. I've got to figure out how to get more. I, I don't have what I need. Oh, I'm disappointed. It's got this sort of motivation factor behind it that's not particularly good. If you look at this and say, this is half full, then you say, I'm going to enjoy this water. I'm going to drink it. I have this thing that I, I can consume and that I can make use of. Um, go ahead to the next slide here. All right. So this... Uh, this sort of starts to get us into First John a little bit and really what I want to talk about. So one of the things that I want to, I guess, talk about first is that our, the way that we see things or the, our perspective of life and certainly our perspective of the scripture can affect how we're able to benefit or not benefit from sort of what the Lord's saying in it and what the writers may be intended for us to glean from it. So um, this scripture here, is we actually did this as an exercise in our community group a couple weeks ago. So my wife and I are leading a community group, I guess, largely of age, what, 20 to 25 is sort of the average age range of it. And so we, we decided we were going to cover First John alongside of Vineyard since we're reading it here. We thought, hey, we'll do that in home group, get folks reading the Bible, talk about it some, and just see what comes out of it. So one of the uh, questions that I posed in probably the second week into it was, I guess, my experience in reading First John and reading the scripture has been kind of a mix of both positive and negative experience. Um, how many here sort of grew up in a church environment or some sort of church culture? Um, how many of you grew up in maybe a sort of message or gospel that you would say maybe produced not so great fruit in your life and that it maybe made you afraid or was heavy-handed or you know, had sort of flavor of that. I had a little bit of that myself. Um, so for me, when I grew up, I actually, I grew up going to a private Baptist school for my uh, education until I switched to public school around middle school. And I grew up in an Assemblies of God church that was not particularly dogmatic. They were fairly seeker friendly. It was a, a place that our church stood out because you could go and you didn't have to wear like a suit and tie. And so all our friends loved to come to church with us. And so my, my standard church experience was pretty open, and it was not something that projected a lot of, uh, I guess, condemning sort of attitudes or anything towards us. There wasn't a whole lot of pressure coming on that front. But I'm wired such that I like to follow the rules quite a bit. I'm very linear in my thinking. I'm very black and white in a lot of my perspectives. And so my sort of, I guess, lens of the world was very performance-oriented. And I think that the schooling that I went to reinforced that in a lot of ways, and some Somewhere really early on, I sort of adopted some mentalities that were very uh, self-defeating in that, like, I loved God, I loved Jesus, and I, I wanted to follow him, I wanted to please him, but I had this deep sense of, I can never do that. Which, there, there was truth to that, but the problem was is that the gospel that I'd been preached never really empowered me to lay a hold of that grace in Jesus to actually walk with him. And so I always had a sense of, like, well, I can't really live up to the, the requirements that God has for me. I can't really do this Christian thing that I really want to in my heart, but I feel afraid. And I, I just, I, I'm a very aware of my failures. And so ultimately what it did is it drove me into a lot of just like condemnation and sense of failure. And so I just finally decided, you know what? If I can't live for God and I'm sort of sinning anyway and being a hypocrite, I'm just going to run and do whatever I want to do. So I spent a number of years in high school just kind of running the other way from God. Really, I believe now on account of this one simple sort of skew in my perception early on was that I just didn't didn't understand what I could access in Jesus on account of sort of the way I'd interpreted the message. Um, so all that to say that some of you may be coming from a perspective like that. Some of you may not. I know like 
my wife is one who just doesn't struggle with that at all when she gets into the scripture. But because of this, when I, when I finally did really repent and turn back to Jesus and kind of met him for real and realized his kindness towards me and the grace that he had for me, I still have struggled off and on coming back into the scriptures and bringing some of that old lens into my experience. And so sometimes when I've read the scripture, rather than taking away some sense of empowerment and maybe some conviction to change, and, but something that is somehow strengthening me to walk away with, I would walk away feeling discouraged and walk away feeling, rather than empowered, it would be like, oh, wow, I can never do that. And so I, I kind of want to go after that a little bit today because I think that this is fairly common that all of us have lenses that may have some good things and it may have some bad things, but the Lord has a particular way of seeing things that he wants to bring us to that actually does empower us to walk in the good life that he's provided for us. And so... During our, our community group, we uh, sort of addressed this thing, and this was the particular verse that was sort of the center of this discussion. And it says, No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So, just uh, out of curiosity, who, when they see this, that's like super encouraging and life-giving to them? Is that because nobody feels that way or just nobody wants to raise their hand? Who, when they hear this and they see this, it's like somehow heavy or like discouraging or disheartening? I see at least one hand back there. Okay, so here, here's sort of the two ways that I see that I could read this and would produce completely different results. One of them could be like, oh, I'm sinning. Oh, no, I must not be born of God. Oh, no. This is what real Christians do. I don't act that way. What, what is wrong with me? Oh, no. Uh, I'm not going to read that again. I'm going I'm to go do something else. You know, like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to put that in my compartment of things I don't quite understand and hope that Jesus is nicer than what that sounds like he is. Um, and to be honest, I feel like there's, there's lots of places in Scripture that are kind of scary like that up front that I can think of that it's like, I don't really get that. Somehow I've experienced Jesus in a way that I know somehow that the way I'm seeing it's not right, but I still can't quite resolve it in my, my conscience and in my perspective. And what this does is it produces an underlying sort of guilt where you kind of feel like, well, I kind of feel like I'm okay with God because he's good and I've experienced him and I've tasted him, but somehow I'm reading this other thing and it, I just don't know what to do with that. So let's, let's just put it off here. Don't talk about that. Don't think about it. Some, some theologian understands that, but I don't get it. Um, well, the other way that you could read this, though, would be to say that, wait a second, I am born of God because Jesus said, if I believe in him, I'm born of him. So that means I don't have to practice sin. Or that means his seed is in me. And so that means there, I don't understand this, he cannot sin because obviously I can sin. But there's some sort of gem in there for me that if God is in me and if I'm a son of God, that I can somehow access this life that is has freedom and victory over sin in a way that maybe I haven't thought of before. Maybe I've not even experienced before. And so rather than this being a, I guess, a commandment of sorts of some way you should behave, it's actually a promise and it's good news. It's not a, it's not a burden. It's actually a liberating message that says, guess what? This is what Jesus gave to you. It, there is an element, I think, of learning how to access it or whatever, and there's a process in that. But the, the underlying hope of the message in the gospel is good news. It's not, hey, you're not doing so great. You know, that, that's, that's what got us to Jesus, but the message in Jesus is that there's freedom and that there's some, it's the beginning of something new. Um, all right, so let's go on to the next slide here. All right, so talking about lenses again, one of the like main goals I have for this morning is that hopefully the Lord will adjust our lenses a little bit so that we have maybe a different way of coming into the scriptures and maybe coming into our lives, coming into our walk with the Lord in a way that causes us to see the good news and causes us to see that empowering message. Not that there's not some conviction or the Lord, I mean, he loves us, so he corrects us and stuff. But the the spirit of the Lord is such that even when he brings that word to us, it... Uh, empowers us to change it doesn't somehow heap coals on our head and make us just feel like well i knew that thank you for confirming that i'm a mess <laughs> um and sadly there there is a, a lot of message of that in the church in the world that that's 
a fairly common message you can hear just about anywhere. I mean, we hear it in our own sort of internal dialogues. And it's something that we have to make an intentional shift, I think, in our perspective to see something different, to actually hear the good news and start to choose to fight against these other ideas. Um, this is sort of the one of the underlying um, differences between the old covenant message or the law and the New Testament message. There's this element I think Paul describes. He basically says the law was to cause us to despair. You ever thought about the commandments of God intended to cause you to despair? It's an interesting perspective, but there, there's an element of the old law and rules and do this, don't do this, do this, do all this sort of stuff that's actually supposed, supposed to cause you to go, I can't do that. And that's the point where you turn to Jesus. But the new covenant is very much a message of you've been given this new life in Jesus. Christ is your righteousness. You have this new thing that you've been born into. And that's your new foundation that you walk into. And so it's primarily a simple message of empowerment that causes you to live out life in a very simple way of love. And that's we've been talking about that in First John over the last few weeks. That you know the the real commandments of Jesus he summed up in in two things was love God and love your neighbor. And so he took it from this list of like infinite things, summed it up in this short thing, which is actually kind of harder in some ways, but it's rooted in the fact of who this good news and this good message of who Jesus has made us through what he's done and through what we've received when we just said yes to Jesus. Um, so that's, that's sort of the lens that I, I'm just wanting to talk about and start to maybe help us see things maybe a little differently in how we perceive the scriptures and how we perceive life. And so one of the ways I want to do that, particularly with 1 John, this is certainly not the only lens to look through 1 John through, but one of them would be, okay, what was the intention that John actually had in writing this, writing this book? Uh, so let's move to the next slide here. So this is, this is the question. Okay, so uh, one thing that's interesting, uh, especially as you start to get into some of the New Testament sort of epistles and letters that the various apostles and writers wrote, they often will sort of prelude their writing with saying, hey, I'm writing you this book because. Which is kind of interesting sometimes because it gives you context of like, oh, if I filter this thing through this context of why they were writing this, it might actually give me a better grid with which to understand and how to respond to this letter. So move on to the next slide here. Now, First John is really, this is, was a super interesting discovery to me. First John is only five chapters long, which is fairly short. There's not a whole lot of text, really, but it's, it's super dense with information. Like, if you, if you read through it and read through it again, there's, like, layer upon layer of things that you'll start getting from the Lord of Revelation. And everything, even the things that don't seem to tie together, tie back together somehow. And it's really brilliant, and it's, it's got this stamp of God on it that's just amazing to me. But it's a pretty short book overall. But strangely enough, John actually writes a lot in here about why he's writing this book. So for sort of our scripture reading of the morning, um, I just want to go through the, the places in 1 John that I found this. And so starting with this first one here, this is in uh, the first chapter. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And un- indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Then in chapter 2, he says, My children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I'm I'm emphasizing the reasonings here, if that's not clear. Um, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you, And then the very last thing that he says is, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And that's going to be sort of the center of what we get into, but no, that's okay, you can go on to the next thing. So from my count, I read 12 instances of John saying, 
this is why I'm writing this book. Which, to me, that's kind of crazy for a five-chapter book for somebody to write something 12 times. Is, it's got emphasis, at least that's how I understand it. And so, they, this little lump in the middle of all these becauses are very related. He actually repeats himself a couple times. But it, it sort of highlights some of the reasonings that John is intending to write this. And it, it, this sort of gives us a lens of, okay, if this is the reason he's writing this, Am I, is this what I'm taking out of it? Or one of my questions I have is, okay, how do I get that? Yeah. Like, if, if that's his intent, then he must be including something in the text that is somehow going to empower us to do that. And so, I don't know about y'all, but when I read this list, like, all this stuff is really amazing. Like, none of this is heavy-handed. All of this is actually really empowering to me. He's, he actually is writing a lot of things about things that have already happened. It's not even thing. There's a couple things in there of, you know, so that you will overcome the enemy and so that you can overpower sin or whatever. But there's a lot of language where he's saying your sins are already forgiven. You already know God. You know the truth. You have eternal life. And so the language of John is very much coming from a perspective of something that's already happened to us. And then he's putting some context on it of saying, since this has happened to you, here's what life should look like. And so I think the, the message is that the places that we see those sort of differences where it's like, uh, well, I can see I'm not quite living up to that or don't feel like I am. The hope is always going back to the foundation, which is he's saying, this is what's happened to you in Christ so that you can do this, blah, blah, blah. Does that make sense? And so that's back to my sample of my, my three-year-old. We're in this stage of life right now where if you were to look at it very black and white, you would say... That is a disobedient child. She's not listening. She's not obeying. She's clearly not walking in what she should walk in. Which is ridiculous. If you've ever had a three-year-old. That's just how three-year-olds act. And she's my daughter. She is of my DNA. She is... She she is... I, I can't even describe the affection I feel for my child. You know? And I have strong confidence that she will grow through this. And so I'm, I'm going to correct her through it and help her grow in it and whatnot. But this, this is a good picture for us when we read some of these things. Some of this description that John has, I think, for, you know, that you won't practice sin and things of that sort. We have to take a, a little bit of a higher view of it and that this is not necessarily a today everything's going to be perfect. It's a picture of our relationship with God and the process that we're in and the thing that we're walking out. And it's a hope to keep us moving and keep walking in those things. And so some of, some of this language, as I understand it, is along the lines of saying that if you have Jesus in you, your nature has changed so that like sin doesn't work for you anymore. It's not something that you are practicing. It's not something you're, you're seeking to live in. You're actually looking for ways to grow out of this. And I think that's the process that we're in. And that's the encouragement that we're in this process. And it's, it's real similar to having having a three-year-old or having a child that you're helping process through these sorts of things. Um, during worship, I had this this sort of funny thought. You know, Jesus' earthly ministry was about three years, which basically means he was running around on the world with a bunch of three-year-olds. And so, like, the, the level of maturity that even these, like, notable apostles had in Jesus was really... You know, they they were not theologians. They were not people who had figured this thing out. You know, pretty much everybody when Jesus was crucified, they were all mortified. They they didn't even really believe in the resurrection at that point. And yet, when Jesus was there, he actually sent them out to do the same things he did. He sent them out. They healed the sick. They cast out demons. They they did all the stuff Jesus was doing. And the scripture doesn't have a ton of details about that, but... If you let your imagination run with it a little bit, it's kind of crazy to think that Jesus took sort of this group of unruly young men who really didn't know much about the this real deal, you know, and he said, hey, go out and preach in that city. Go out and do this, this thing. And then they come back and they're like, Jesus, teach us how to pray. You know, like he didn't even teach them how to pray. And so <laughs> Jesus, was, Jesus was not worried about his immature children. And he didn't discount them as... As somehow being less than. He actually left the keys with them when he left the earth. And you know, and then they, they started to get it. You know, they started to see who they were. And like John, who was one of these young, unruly apostles at one point, I, I believe he wrote these books later on in life. 
I, I don't know how old he actually was when it happened. I, I don't know the history so much. But you see the depth in the thing that happened in his process of growing with Jesus. So this is a man writing to us from a, a perspective of having tasted these things and grown in these things in Jesus and bringing this hope to us, having seen the process through. Uh, can you go back one slide again really quick? All right, so this, this last point here is the one that I want to talk about for a few minutes here. So that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the final statement. This is right in the middle of chapter 5. And this is the final reason that John says that he is writing this book. Um, and so the next slide here. So I, I kind of jokingly put this up because it reminds me of where we live. Um, it. It's amazing to me the, the signs and stuff you see on the side of the road if you drive through some of the country around here. And just some of the really, like, not-so-nice things uh, that are in the name of God. And trying to somehow encourage people to turn to Jesus, but they're kind of, like, angry. and Anyway, so this, this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek sort of thing. But, but underlying that, I kind of want to just think about, okay, when, when you hear eternal life, what sort of images come to mind? Um, for me, having grown up again in the church and there being certain language and sort of assumptions and mindsets already built around the notion of eternal life, this sign is a lot of what you think about is the, well, once this life is done, we exit and you either go to eternal life or you go to eternal something not so life. And, but it's this idea of get your stuff right now. Hope that you did it well, and one day you're going to meet Jesus, and you'll find out if you really did. And, but it's still got this connotation of sometime later, sometime later. Get your stuff right, because sometime later. You don't know when, sometime later. This thing is, this thing is going to happen to you. Um, but I, I want to propose that John actually was maybe talking about something a little bit different. Um, so move on to the next slide here. Um, this is a translation of that same scripture by N.T. Wright um, in a book that I've been reading lately. And he says, I am writing these things to you so that you may know that you who believe in the name of the Son of God do indeed have the life of the age to come. And so rather than him saying, uh, you can actually back up one. We'll we'll get into that in a second. Um, You know, we have sort of this churchy language around this term eternal life. So sometimes it's helpful to give us a a little bit different way of saying things to get us to think about it a little bit differently. And so this eternal life, you know, in in my understanding, it makes me think of, well, you live forever. Uh, You live somewhere off in this place that we don't understand. And it's very disconnected from the implications of that for now, other than just having this idea of, well, you better do the right thing, whatever that means. Um. Whereas the life of the age to come has a little bit of a different connotation in that it's saying there is this coming thing and there is some quality of life to it. It's, it's less about the duration of it, although it is eternal. I don't want to discount that at all. I mean, it is a forever. Uh, but there's also an eternal existence that is for those who don't know Jesus. So the, the nature of eternal life is not most notably in that it lasts forever. It's It's... Largely tied to the the nature of it and the quality of it. And so the life of the age to come, John's describing this thing that in this age to come, there's a certain quality and nature of the way things are. And you have that now. And so that's that that starts getting us into something kind of exciting. Like, wait a second, we have this thing now. We have this life of the age to come. It's not just the something we have later. It's something we have now. And it has this, this thing that's not even here yet, and somehow we've been given this thing that we can access now. Um, I actually looked this up in a, a Strong's Concordance type of thing. And uh, sometimes when I try and do what I've seen preachers do of looking up the Greek and getting some cool, <laughs> co- cool deep meaning, I read it like, oh, it really does mean what it says. You know, like it's, <laughs> it means love. Um, but I did happen to stumble across this other translation because here was my real motivation. When I read N.T. Wright's interpretation of this, I thought, well, if I'm going to preach about this and put this up on the board, I want to get some sort of confirmation that he's not just making up this definition, you know. 
Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, so I looked it up, and one of the first commentaries I came across actually said just that. They said that uh, it was a Greek translation, and they said that this actually was not so much as the duration of the time. It had to do with the nature and quality of a coming age. And they were speaking of it very generically, so they weren't even describing what that age was like. But they were saying the language of it really is communicating that something pertaining to an age, something pertaining to an era or a particular time frame of things. So that, again, gives us a a clue into this thing where there's this age to come that we have some glimpses of, and we'll probably talk about a few aspects of that. But the main point being that whatever that, that age is like, we have it. And we have access to it. We've been given to it now. It's not just a one day. Um, so that sort of poses the next question in my mind. And what I'd like to pose to us is, what, what is that age to come? And this kind of gets into maybe some eschatology and theology. And it can tend to start to get into a, arguments and speculations and stuff like that. So I, I don't want to do that. Because the honest truth is, I, I understand very little of it. Um, I feel like the Lord's starting to open my eyes to some things that are starting to stir me up. And I'm like, whoa, this is way different than what I thought it was. And it's getting me searching into something. But I, the honest truth is, is, I don't know. I'm still speculating. I'm still trying to understand. I'm still trying to see, okay, what are the implications for me now? And how is this supposed to impact my life? Because this is where I am right now. And somehow... There's a mandate on my life from Jesus of something I'm supposed to do, of a way I'm supposed to live. And so understanding what that's supposed to be like now is, is important. Um, and so I, when I was thinking about this in the car on the way here today, I was thinking sort of regardless of our eschatology, regardless of our religious upbringing, church upbringing, whatever, I would say one thing that's pretty common in at least the church's belief of eternity is that it's something good. I don't think anybody really has an eschatology that heaven's going to be really awful. You know, that it's going to be a sad place, that people are going to be mad. Um, it, there's a pretty general consensus that whatever this thing is that Jesus has given us will be a place where, you know, every tear is wiped, as the scripture says. There's no sadness. All, all the pain and the brokenness that we've experienced in this side of things is somehow redeemed and restored and gone. Um, And so I kind of want to focus on that aspect of it because I think that's something that pretty much everybody is probably on that same page already regardless of of how that looks. That the, the life of the age to come is something that we all desire and it's something that we look forward to and it's something that is fulfilling. It's something that... Uh, There's no sickness, there's no death. All those things are not there. And so those, whatever those attributes are and however those manifest, John is actually saying we have those here. And now I I will say that I'm not saying that he's somehow delusional and saying like, oh, the world's great. You know, everything's great. There's no evil in the world. You guys are saved. Everything's good. Believe that even though you're going through this awful thing. I don't think he's saying that at all. I think that he's saying, but there's something inside of you you know, and the context of these writings was to a church that was being persecuted. I think John himself actually wrote a lot of the scripture he wrote after being boiled in oil. I mean, that's crazy. I have no idea how to do that. I've, I've heard some, some legend of the way they describe that is that they basically tried to kill him and it didn't work. And so they said, well, we're going to exile him to this island. And that island was where he had the revelation that he wrote the book of Revelation from. And so... So John actually wrote, having been familiar with a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. I mean, Jesus himself, they watched be crucified. They watched as like the ministry they thought he was going to have completely dissolved in front of them. But then he was resurrected and proved who he was and it changed everything for them. But point being, they, they were not living in a place where they were seeing this peace and joy and righteousness and justice manifest in the governments and in the nations and in the, the community structure that they lived in. And yet, in that context, he was still saying, you have this. This is something you've been given. You've been given the life of the age to come. This is something that is in you in Christ. And so there's this thing that's deeper than just maybe what you're experiencing on the outside. And yet, I don't think he intended for it to just stay there. Um, So it's not just a message of everything will be good one day. You have this thing inside of you. Just be hopeful, be hopeful, be hopeful until the end. And then you die and everything will be good. I think that message has been preached quite a bit. I grew up with some flavor of that. And, 
and there is some truth to it. There, there really is a, I mean, the scripture talks about that sort of hereafter and the, the hope after we go through a, this time of suffering or whatever. But I think the real hope that John is offering is actually something that's tangible for now. And that's, here's a, a couple of those things that I think this includes. So the, the bullet points of 12 that I listed earlier, I hope everybody's memorized those and is going to chew on all, all 12 of those when they go home. No, joking. Um, here, here's sort of four summary things that I took out of that longer list of things that I saw in that list. Um, the first thing is relationship and fulfillment. Uh, the first thing John said was that I write these things to you so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with God. And so one of the qualities of the age to come is restored relationships. And it's right relationship. It's good relationship. It's family relationship. And I know in a, a group of this sort, we all come from different family experiences. Some of us have come from really amazing like natural family experiences, some of us have come from some really rough ones. And so this idea of family can mean different things to different people. But I think the, the hope that we have in Jesus and the hope that we have for now is that in this life of the age to come, all of that stuff has been reconciled and forgiven and healed. Like the, the nature of relationship that we have available in the church and with one another is something that God has given us to redeem all of, all of those other sorts of things. And so he, this promise of relationship, both restored with God, that communion with him and that intimacy with him and really knowing who he is and, and not just like knowing him like he's there and I'm here, he's doing his thing, I'm doing his thing, but we're, our lives are in a communion where we're relating to each other and I'm sharing myself with him and he's enjoying me and I'm somehow taking his nature and walking in who he is and that's empowering me to somehow bring that here and i think that's that's one of the like most exciting things like even if you didn't have any of the other stuff you get access to god himself and we are of his nature we're born of him but the outflow of that and it's one of the things that's really important that john talks about a lot is relationship with people and it's actually one of the things john points to a lot in the book of john and i think adam's talked about it and Lori may have talked about this aspect some too it's like if you look at your life and don't have relationship with people and everything in our lives is sort of somehow dysfunctional in that way it's actually a sign that okay something's something's off elsewhere because the true fruit of relationship with god and relationship with jesus is that those things will it it outflows into our horizontal relationships with people as well but again back on the hope of that not on the like well you should get your relationships right side of thing the promise in that is that What's in you will do that for you. And what Jesus has provided has that for you. And so it's hope. If you are estranged from people you love or they're estranged from you or, you know, I've got some family members and stuff that I, I feel disconnected from and things. The hope in that is that the life that Jesus has given me can restore that and wants to restore that and is there for that. And so that's, that is a, a significant quality of the life of the age to come, but we have it now and we're, we're walking it out. The other one is forgiveness. And this one is just, this is huge. This is really part of the foundation as well, is that it's just, it's simple. I, I'm at a loss for words because it's so simple. We're, we're forgiven. Like, whatever you've done, whatever you will do, whatever I've done, whatever I will do, it's, it's dealt with. It's, it's not in the mix as far as my relationship with God. It really is something he's completely dealt with. And so I don't need to focus on the past stuff because of this thing. And that's the, again, something that we, I think all of us fully expect that in the age to come. If you've been preached a message of heaven, even in some of the more like heavy handed sort of fire and brimstone preaching, there's still a sense that once you go to be with Jesus, you'll be good. You're not going to have guilt. You're not going to like there's all that's resolved. But the promise is that it's here now. It's for today. It's for when you go home. It's for when you don't do so good. Uh, it's the this place with God that you can come back to him and say, whoops, that wasn't great. And, and he's forgiven us. He does forgive us. He cleanses us. He has cleansed us. Um, and then this third one is, is amazing to me. And this was one that I never learned growing up. 
and I alluded to that earlier, but power over sin and evil in our lives. The gospel is more than just mercy. It's more than just you get a pardon. That's significant because we need that and we'll continue to need that. But the greater hope to me is that he's actually delivered us from that thing that bound us in that in the first place. That old nature and that old drive and that feeling of trapped or I can't, I don't want to do what I'm doing, but I can't seem to stop. Or I, I want to do better, but I can't seem to do it. The promise in Jesus is that he has actually put that in us. And so that's the thing that we, we lean back on where I think all of us find ourselves in places where it's like, yeah, I, I know there's some areas I'm doing great in. And there's some areas that I'm still just failing in. There's some, like, as an example for me, there's interactions I have with my children sometimes that I'm like, Lord, I'm sorry. I did that again. I got angry. I did. I'm acting in ways towards my kids. I love my kids. I don't want to treat them that way. And so it's a process for me where I, the Lord's working this thing out. But the good news is that there's grace for that. And that somehow in this process of being fathered by God, in the same way my three-year-old who's being fathered by me, she will process out of those things. And I think it's the same hope to us that if we'll walk in relationship with God, we, we can and will have victory over these things. Um, and so then the fourth point really applies to all of these things. And it's that the things we've been given in the life of the age to come are things that we share freely with others. This is, uh, you know, one of the vineyard values. Is it actually labeled radical generosity? Um, it's deeply tied to this. It's back, again, back to what you have. You can't be generous with something you don't have. You get in trouble if you give away someone else's stuff. Um, that's called stealing. Uh, so don't do that. Uh, but... The reality is we have stuff. <laughs> we have stuff to give. And the true outflow of really, it's, I don't even think it's as much as, it's not just having it, it's knowing what you have. Like, if you have something but don't know what's in your closet, you're never going to give that away. Um, in the same way, if you don't know that you have mercy and forgiveness, if you don't know these things in your heart, you won't extend that to other people. I won't extend that to other people if I don't realize I have it for myself. And I think that's, you know, there's uh, parables that Jesus gives where he basically says, if you don't forgive your brother, I won't forgive you. Which that's another one of those things. It's like, that seems so backwards. Like, Jesus gives first and then we give or whatever. But I think part of the message in it is that if you're not forgiving somebody, you've really not received the forgiveness Jesus gave you or you don't get it. Because if you really see it, which is part of really receiving it and really experiencing it, you can't help but to give it away. And I think that's, that's the nature of the kingdom, is that we've been given this stuff for free. Completely for free. And it's, it's beautiful and it's amazing. And the, the riches of what God has provided and given to us is in some ways unfathomable and we'll be discovering it forever. But there is some element of it that he wants to reveal now and we... Like we can be amazed by it now and then go and share that thing with others. So this, this is a big one. This is sort of the, this is actually the thing that, that John frequently throughout the book of John points back to. As he basically says, if you say you have these other things, but you don't have this, you're lying about the other thing. And that's kind of heavy, but again, the, the hope in it is again, go back to the other stuff. Like if you find that you're treating people bad, Remember, God loves you. You know, go back to the foundation. It's not a message of shape up and perform better. It's a message of if you're behaving this way, it probably means you're not really seeing the other thing. And so if we see the other things and see what he's given us, then we can't help but to give. If you really know that you have no lack, which, you know, I think all of us could say we have lack in like natural things or, you know, we wish we had more provision in something. We wish we had more money to get xyz or man we're we're struggling with this payment for this thing or yeah we can't buy that this year because we you know all of us are aware of limitations that we may have in our natural what we have but if you really had a perspective of or if you were born into an inheritance where you really had no concern of that sort of thing it would change your perspective radically about how you would give that away and i think that that truth applies to the the things that we have in the kingdom it's the, this thing that we've inherited for free. We were born into it through Jesus. That's what we have. 
And it's all of these attributes. It's all of these qualities. And that's the thing. Because we have it. And because it's been given to us for free. We, we can't help but give it for free. And so that's, that's the sort of the last point. And it's also the litmus test. Of how we're doing in the other stuff. Um, but again the, the main takeaway here for me. And it's what I hope to convey here. Is I think that the. The way we've got to filter these things is when we see a deficiency in some sort of outflow of our life, the answer is not to flail at the branches and try and fix all that stuff. It's to recognize that, okay, that's a sign of something else. But to go back to the Lord and say, Lord, help me. Help me see clearly. Adjust my lens. Help me remember what you've given me. Lord, thank you for forgiving me. You forgave me. I did rotten stuff, and I'm having trouble forgiving that guy. You know, it's, but it's remembering what we've been given so that then we can outflow. And become that, become the kingdom to other people. Um, and then the very last thing I'll, I'll mention about this is that this is, I think, most immediately connected with what Lori talked about. Love the person right in front of you the best. And so all these things are very directly applicable to our families, to our coworkers, to those that we see on a day-to-day. This is where we should see that first point of contact. But I think the bigger picture of the life of the age to come in this coming age is that Jesus wants to bring the kingdom into the earth. And he wants to, you know, he said, pray that my kingdom would come, that my will would be done in the earth as it is in heaven. And so again, this is back to this message, not of us flying away in the hereafter. It's the, how do we get this life that's there here? And so whether it's the simple stuff of loving your neighbor or whether it's God's nature coming into like our businesses coming into our education systems coming into the larger infrastructures into the into the things that are the society and the culture and the framing that we live in now because even though we've met jesus in a way that you know our things are settled for us in some way you know it's like well i could be content and just sit and be like well somewhere in the hereafter i'll be with jesus i've gotten my life right everything's good if we take on that kind of perspective then there's so many people around us who don't get that and so the part of the challenge and the mandate on us is to recognize what we've been given. And then knowing that, how can I give that to as much of the culture in the place that my feet walk on this ground as possible? And so finding ways to say, let your kingdom come in Campbellsville. Let your kingdom come in XYZ. Any place that you see that's not the life of the age to come. If there's injustice, if there's poverty or, or just plain out evil. I mean, there's lots of places where there's like just stuff that's going on that's terrible. I mean, to me, like when you look at international news, you know, some of that feels very distant and like, well, I can't do anything about this crazy stuff going on in the Middle East. Well, I can. I can pray. And I can pray for the life of the age to come that is in me to go there. And so having that perspective that Jesus wants to, from the top down, in the infrastructures, any place that touches people, any place that is sort of the age as we know it here, our challenge and our our responsibility as the church at large is to to bring that here. And we're coming preaching that good news that this kingdom has come. This kingdom is available. And, you know, preaching it is not just talking about something that's coming. It's bringing it into the now. And that was what the what Jesus did. That was what the apostles did. You know, in their day, the message that they preached was manifested. And that's that's another one of these things that First John is full of, is that Jesus is manifest. Jesus is manifested. If it's Jesus, he will be manifest. If it's Jesus, he will be made known. If it's Jesus, he is touchable. It's not, if he's Jesus, put him in your theology. Think about him a lot. Do that too. Do that too. That's important. <laughs> but Jesus is manifest. And that's our, we are the body, we are Jesus in the earth. And so that's the, that's the encouragement and the challenge to us is to realize what we have, who we are, and to fully live in that place so that, that other people can benefit from that. Because ultimately, that's, that's what it is. It's the extension of the kingdom to other people so that other people can taste this, this good life that Jesus has for us. I think that's all I have to say. Um, everybody want to stand really quick? I'm going to pray for us. Um, let's just do, let's just put out our hands if you feel like it. Uh, cause we're, 
we're going to receive something, but we're also going to acknowledge something that we already have. So, Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the way you are. Thank you that we have you and that you have us. Thank you for what we've been given in you. Lord, thank you for what's resident in every believer in Jesus. Lord, that seed of Jesus that grows and overtakes everything else. Lord, I just ask that we would somehow become more aware of what you've put in us, that we would somehow realize and see more of what we have. And I pray that your kingdom would come in us and through us, in our community, in our nation, in the world. Just let your kingdom come, Lord. Let the good life of the age to come be real to us now, because we have eternal life, like John said, that you may know that you have eternal life. So, Lord, let us know that we have eternal life, the life of the age to come, and show us what to do with it. And help us do it. And, Lord, places where we feel like we failed or along the way where we don't feel like we've done right, maybe we don't do right, whatever, help us just turn back to you every time and just, just look at the right thing, Lord. Give us that lens to see your heart. And Lord, I, I just pray um, specifically for old lenses to come off of minds, for old uh, cares of, of the world or anxiety or things like that that have settled on our minds, that those things would come off and that we'd see through your lens that brings empowerment and liberty to us and others. In Jesus' name. Thank you again for stopping by the podcast at the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening here at the Vineyard, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace to you.